Hello and welcome back to the Spike Podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and back with me this week we have Spike's editor Tom Slater. Hello. And Spike columnist Ella Whelan. Hi. Coming up on today's show, the prosecution of Donald Trump, Denmark's ban on Koran burning and Costa Coffee's celebration of top surgery. So Donald Trump has been indicted again for the third time. He has been charged effectively with trying to overturn the 2020 presidential election. There's four charges against him. That brings the total charges up to around 78, potentially, if he was found guilty on every single charge against him, which is unlikely. Um, he could go to jail for over 100 years. Now, Tom, what do you make of these latest charges? Well, I think he's just burnished his narrative, which is that this is a political witch hunt. You'd have to be a Trumpist to see that this long-running attempts to just kind of get him on some kind of legal grounds by means of, if not locking him up, then certainly just making him a more kind of degraded mm. figure and proposition going into the next election. That That is surely what is driving this. I mean, there's been so many different allegations levied against him, three blockbuster indictments now. You could break them off and say certain ones have a bit more merit than the others. You know, yeah. the New York indictment, which is all about the hush money payments, was faintly ridiculous. You had this indictment around him handling the classified documents, which seemed, he seemed to be banged to rights. But then again, wasn't that dissimilar from what other figures, including Joe Biden, have been engaging in? This one, again, is back to just it feeling like they started from the position of wanting to get him for something and then just work backwards, to be mm. perfectly frank. Um, people who are much more in the know than I, commentators in the US, have pointed out that it's not entirely clear what he's being accused of even is a crime in this instance. What it effectively boils down to is the fact that he was spreading these ridiculous conspiracy theories about the election being stolen from him and that in his attempts to um, organise fake groups of electors to um, or alternative groups of electors, as you might say, to try and challenge the vote in his efforts to try and get Mike Pence to overturn the um, election result in his attempts to pressure various different state governments into investigating bogus, as it turns out, forms of um, election fraud, that he was defrauding the United States and obstructing the process. But this is an incredibly kind of slippery standard, which as many people have pointed out, could very easily criminalise anyone's attempts to challenge what might be a contested election, as is not infrequent in America, shall we say. So I don't think you have to hold any candle to all of the mad theories that he was peddling in the wake of 2020 about Venezuelan voting machines and dead people voting en masse and so on to recognise that this is part of that attempt to get him and that he things can be bad without being criminal. Yeah. And that particularly when you're talking about going after a, um, not just a former president, but someone who's completely really nailed on now to be the next Republican nominee, that you shouldn't be coming up with all kinds of confected legal theories in order to get him, that that's dragging the law and the judicial system into the political process. And um, that's bad for everyone in the long run, but it seems like the kind of blinkered democratic establishment in the US who just want to get him by yeah. any means necessary can't see that at this point. Yeah, Ella, I mean, isn't there a difference between saying, look, Trump lied about the 2020 election, that's anti-democratic, that's bad, making the political case against Trump um, where, you know, it is pretty outrageous, some of the stuff he was saying, versus trying to get him legally, versus versus trying to essentially put him in prison. Well, it's been like that pretty much since Trump came onto the political scene, Mm. that the um, Democrats have struggled and failed to mount a coherent political argument against Trump other than that he's uh, deplorable, that he's some kind of immoral, that doesn't actually amount to anything 
substantially political, but he's a bit icky because, mm. you know, they remember all those sort of depictions of him as a fat crying baby or that he's uh, so abhorrent that the only way to get him is to put him in jail. And I mean, the the kind of polls speak for themselves. There's been, you know, it's pretty clear that he at the very, very least has a good chance mm. of becoming president and potentially being in jail and elected. I mean, if, if their attempts to, um, with all these indictments come to fruition, that would be a remarkable result. And and the fact that that's a possibility um, tells you something about Trump's remaining, uh, you know, support and uh, favorability, particularly among people who were already his base, who yeah. see these kind of allegations for what they are, which is a kind of a political attempt. But the, I think one of the most telling moments was when um, Special Counsel Jack Smith, who's obviously at the head of a lot of these um, indictments and uh, involved in this, was giving a press conference and it wasn't going into the specifics of those particular indictments, whether it be the stuff that was found at Mar-a-Lago or any of the rest of it. But it was all about the storming of the Capitol. Mm. It was all about um, January the 6th, which doesn't actually, fa- you know, technically doesn't factor into any of the cases. They haven't yeah. got him on anything related to that. But that was just a clear indication that, you know, this was about sending a kind of political message mm gearing people up, you know, gene people are saying, here we go, we're going to get him, we're going to get him on these grounds and don't worry about the specifics, this is just about um, removing Trump from the political scene and people can see right through that. And as Tom says, the, you know, for anyone, whatever side of the political debate you're on in America and what a horrendous choice to pick between uh, potentially Biden and Trump, again, <laughs> is, uh, you know, is the fact that if you have a political uh, battle, which is essentially going to be determined by lawyers, by special counsels, by people who have no say or interest really in uh, having any accountability to the electorate. Yeah, that's a very, very big. Clearly, that's a very big problem for democracy. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. You remember that you mentioned January six, and lots of people actually expected that to be part of this indictment, the incitement to rioting, mm-hmm. which again, you know, that seems like a reasonable thing to um, that could be criminalised. But clearly, they don't think that there's a a case to make against that that's you know that's fascinating in itself i mean it was interesting because there was such a desire to get him for that it was also the pretext in some cases for booting him off various social media platforms yeah. and so on. even the fact that um america because it has very strong um enviable in my view kind of free speech standards that him just saying we're going to fight like hell and so on is not inciting a riot you know yeah. they have these very clear-cut standards and it does just feel like across the board there is this desire to get rid of these what they would often refer to as their liberal democratic norms to the ends of trying to get rid of Trump. And reading the indictment, it is a reminder of those crazy weeks between the election and um, the inauguration in which you have, again, this kind of band of misfits effectively going around trying to topple the election result through, you know, when one thing doesn't work, they try the next thing. It becomes increasingly desperate, increasingly conspiratorial, increasingly harebrained. But the story of it, without wanting to kind of fetishize the American system too much, is that it didn't work. Yeah. You know, the individuals involved um, or the individuals who were being called upon to try and act and try and subvert the election refused to do so. Even a string of kind of quite pro-Trump Republican governors refused to play ball, mm. made clear that there was no there there in terms of all of the things that he was alleging. Um, whereas on the other side, the attempt to after January 6th, after the 2020 election, tried to weaponize effectively the institution of American justice, not just against Trump, but against Trumpists in general, in an attempt to kind of put it all back in the box and yeah. to try and make sure that it's never happened again. It might not succeed in convicting him, time will tell, but it certainly succeeded in bringing these things 
to the point of prosecutions mm. in terms of making the law even more of a kind of weapon than it was previously. Um, and that's the, that's always the issue is that, you know, you had Trump, which was trying, who was trying to overturn the result of the 2020 election in this kind of cartoonish, ridiculous fashion that was always doomed to fail. But in response to him, the democratic establishment or the kind of American establishment more broadly have set it set about tearing up the supposed norms they were there to protect with a plum in a way that will certainly be far more far reaching than what Donald Trump and Rudy Giuliani and a few other crazy lunatics got up to in after the election. You know? But I think that that's what the carelessness of this is an interesting point. I spoke to I rang up Sean Collins, who does a lot of work on um, American issues for spite and uh, you know, asked him what is what what kind of is the feeling in America, and he said the thing that shocked him the most was that, you know, if a if someone of such high, high political office or you know former political office was such a big political figure as Trump, um, had potentially done you know broken the law and and in in this way that he did with these files, that you would tread very carefully because you'd know what would be at stake. You know, this is someone who's a president, you know, a candidate someone who a lot of people are invested in one way or another and you would sort of be judging every move you make on the balance of what it would do to the kind of political atmosphere um and they seem to he says you know the fact that they've just thrown that out the window that there's this chaotic kind of scramble to get him even you know causing quite a big problem with joe, for joe biden yeah. at the moment because obviously you, you have sleepy joe saying well i don't know that i didn't know there were all these files in delaware i didn't know there were all these files all over the place seemingly losing files that are you know, classified as quite serious around intelligence and things like that it's it's completely open for people to say more double standards of you know and then the clinton emails come back up and all the rest of it so it just becomes this mess that you can't make whatever side you're on you can't make any political headway out of so i think the carelessness around that and just the sort of destruction of the political process is something to behold. And it's worth um, thinking about in terms of double standards. Now, you know, obviously we wouldn't want to see uh, these people indicted or anything like that. But, you know, Hillary Clinton and her supporters made similar kind of claims about the election being stolen. Al Gore made all kinds of claims about his election being stolen. Now, what I'm, you could say that Trump's claims are on another level, that he went further, he took perhaps action to substantiate his claims. But it is true that, you know, practically a lot of elections have been contested mm. and contested on very dubious grounds. I mean, especially if you think about 2016, mm. because of the fact that when Trump or Rudy Giuliani or Sidney Powell go around talking about the election being stolen, um, not that many people in positions of power or certainly state power and influence who took them seriously at all. That certainly wasn't true of the whole Russiagate conspiracy, which of yeah. course sparked this whole Mueller inquiry, various different kind of congressional probes um, to this day has still convinced a very large proportion of the democratic electorate mm. um, that the, that election was fundamentally stolen, that it was illegitimate. There are all these clips doing the rounds online at the moment of various different democratic politicians making precisely the kinds of points which are supposedly so damning when they were in Trump's mouth over the question of 2020. And it's just so striking as well that essentially ever since Trump was elected, there has been this move to try and do with the law or with process or with all kinds of other non-political democratic methods, what they couldn't do at the ballot box. And yeah. it's impossible not to see this as the latest and most kind of extreme version of that. And what's been so fascinating about this is that it really hasn't worked in terms of making him not a potential future president of the <laughs> United States. Obviously, he didn't win in 2020. But at the moment, as Ellie was saying, you know, he's neck and neck 
with Joe Biden at this point in the yeah. I think as some people have pointed out, he's actually in a better position than he was at the similar point in the cycle in 2016 or 2020. Um, there's also the fact that if you look at in terms of his kind of polling support, there's a the amount of people on the Republican side who believe he might have done something wrong is kind of ticking up, but they're still saying that they prefer him to the alternative. Yeah. There was this amazing quote in the New York Times from someone who's a Trump supporter saying, yeah, I used to be a Democrat, but they're not for ordinary people anymore. I voted for Trump. I don't like Trump. I don't like the Democrats even more. And yeah. so through these machinations, they've only burnished that narrative and they've made, having kind of, in a sense, kind of created Donald Trump in the first place by so demonizing their own voters, ignoring their voters for so long, creating the opening for someone to come along and go to those states and say, I actually see you, I hear you, and I will do what those Democrats have always refused to do by engaging in this years-long witch hunt against him from when he was in office and even afterwards to try and get rid of him has only kind of reaffirmed people, people's feelings that this isn't just about Donald Trump, it's about us, they hate us as well. And now... All these years later, we're still going into this next election with Trump essentially being the Molotov cocktail candidate who, yeah. if you're fed up with these people who obviously want nothing to do with you, vote for him. Throw it at Washington, D.C., see what happens. So whatever happens in terms of these particular legal processes, whether Trump ever sees the inside of a prison cell where so many people are so excited to potentially see on the Democratic side... Um, in terms of the political impact for the Democrats, it's going to be atrocious, and they've only brought this on themselves. And yeah. that's been the story since long before 2016, definitely. Hello, everyone. Just want to say a huge thank you to everyone who's gone out and bought a copy of Brendan O'Neill's brilliant spiked book, A Heretic's Manifesto. It's been great reading all of your emails, your glowing Amazon reviews. Thanks so much for getting behind it. The response with the reviews and the media has been brilliant as well. So if you haven't already purchased your copy of Brendan O'Neill's A Heretic's Manifesto. What are you waiting for? It's the book that comes highly recommended by Andrew Doyle, Julia Hartley Brewer, Michael Schellenberger, the former Prime Minister of Australia, Tony Abbott, and Spike readers everywhere. So to get your hands on a copy, stop what you're doing right now and go to amazon.com or amazon.co.uk to order yourself a copy. Thanks so much. And now on with the show. So Denmark is considering a ban on insulting other countries, cultures and religions. This has been sparked by a spate of Koran burnings in both Denmark and Sweden. The most recent incident was on Monday where a Iraqi refugee and his friend burned a Koran outside the Swedish parliament. And Sweden and Denmark have been under a lot of pressure from um, Islamic countries to essentially crack down on this and they're caving. Um, Ella, I mean, this idea of banning, insulting other countries is just chilling, isn't it? Well, it's remarkable that it's not, I mean, it would be bad if it was, but that it's not just you can't burn religious texts mm. or, you know, sacred religious texts or, you know, some kind of specific wording about that. Not that it would be okay to do that, but the fact that it's countries, cultures and religions, such a wide scope of, you know, potential for censorship there. I mean, will people be allowed to... uh you know, boo other countries at football matches. Yeah. I mean, seriously, yeah. you know, will you be allowed to um, send up kind of, I don't know, yoga culture? You know, wh where does this where does this end? It's incredibly cowardly. In fact, Brendan O'Neill in his article for Spiked on this uh, used the word appease. It's, you know, the, yeah. the fact that these countries are being threatened, in particular by Turkey, um, being threatened to say, we won't allow you to enter NATO. We were going to kind of put all these sort of uh, international blocks on you unless you bring in essentially sort of blasphemy law, yeah. you know, hyper blasphemy law, which extends into culture and countries, 
Um, and they are, instead of standing up for liberal democratic values, for free speech, and, you know, it's quite easy to say it's probably not the nicest or smartest thing in the world to burn someone's holy book. That's not, it's not a great political protest. But in our country, you won't go to jail if you do it, or, yeah. you know, you, you can do it because we're a free country. It seems to me like the bare minimum that you would be able to express your political or anti-religious views in that way. Um, and it's, it, I think it's just telling of the way that, you know, quite a few of countries, particularly in Europe, are going in relation to blasphemy law, particularly when it comes to um, Islam. Yeah. Tom, are we just too cowardly when it comes to, you know, it, when Islam is in the frame, essentially? Well, I think that deep cowardice has been there for so many decades now. And if you think about, especially the way in which this, so this uh, restriction that Denmark are kind of have tabled and that Sweden have said they're thinking is kind of similar. There's even ca there's even cowardice in terms of how they pose it. Because again, they present this as this is about clamping down on speech that upsets other countries, cultures, yeah. and religions, and so on. But I'm pretty sure you could burn the stars and stripes in Sweden and, or Denmark and not get in too much trouble even after this law has come in yeah. to place. If they're talking about religion, we know they're not talking about the Mormons. Uh, this is so obvious what's going on here, yeah. and it's also as you were saying, Ella, just. Are we really suggesting that um, certain nations, certain religious leaders should have a right to dictate the free speech rights of people in entirely different countries? It's, it's something incredibly outrageous about this. And you would just wish that nations like Denmark and Sweden, first of all, would have the guts to kind of stand up for their own citizens' free speech rights, even if those sometimes are going to be exercised by some genuinely bigoted far-right people it's also worth pointing out that some of these quran burnings have been ex-muslims yeah people from muslim majority countries people who have left the faith behind and so on this isn't people just like refugees from those countries exactly this isn't just you know again kind of far-right agitators who are just looking to cause trouble necessarily um and not only did you wish that these countries had the the guts to stand up for these rights themselves but also that there would be a bit more solidarity that other mm. countries i mean if the european union is supposedly supposed to stand up for european values why is it deadly quiet on this particular issue and that also that depressing sense that the way in which um various different um sort of islamist tyrants effectively have been campaigning on the world stage under the auspices of the um the organization for islamic cooperation to effectively introduce worldwide blasphemy restrictions yeah. under the idea that it's hate speech to defame gods and prophets and so on is being depressingly successful mm. um and you just feel like since the Rushdie affair onwards, really, we've just been slowly on this path. And whilst there's been little flare-ups of um, support for blasphemers, well, there's been little flare-ups of just sweet Charlie when that happened and so on. Yeah. Really, we're always heading in this direction because that fundamental cowardice and inability to stick up for proper liberal enlightenment values has just eked and sort of eaten itself away, it seems like. And, and also, I mean, isn't there a problem with the fact that when we do give in to this stuff, aren't we just giving it a further green light we're sort of validating the idea that it's okay for muslims to be angry and to shut us down if we want to insult their religion you know every time we give in we're not actually we're not actually making the problem go away no and we're and we're also well you know everybody says everything feeds the culture war these days but there is a sense in which you know uh, if you're unable to sort of like i said take a step back and say it doesn't matter it almost doesn't matter that this act is a stupid thing to do that the very that you know the what is worse than burning a Quran in front of an embassy or in front of a mosque or anything like that is the idea that you couldn't. Yeah. It's the idea that you would be prevented from doing so because that speaks to much more important, broader, universal values around 
free speech, freedom of conscience, freedom of religion even. Um, and the fact that a supposedly civilized uh, modern nation um, like Sweden or anywhere else isn't able to grasp that is worrying. But it's also, when we talk about cowardice, you also kind of want to say, well, do you think that you could go into any of these countries that are, um, you know, throwing their toys out of the pram basically around this blasphemy law and say what you like about uh, being gay or say what you like about being a woman or, you know, we've, you know, women are being in some um, of these nations are being, you know, polarized for showing their hair. Yeah. And so there's, there's no give and take even. It's like we will bend over backwards to not offend you in any way possible, despite mm -hmm. the fact that you yourself have some pretty offensive views. Yeah. And we're not marching. We're not marching in and saying, you know, as a democratic, not as a democratic nation, we're not marching and saying, as a sovereign nation, you have to do this. Mm. And yet we, um, you know, yet we're the ones that have to always acquiesce. And I don't think that says anything about the strength of, um, of that kind of sort of uh, extreme religious viewpoint. It yeah. speaks more about the weakness of a secular. Um, freedom, supposedly freedom-based uh, view in the West. Yeah, and it's worth remembering as well, this is, not only do we have a failure here of kind of solidarity with, say, Sweden or Denmark, or at least trying to, you know, support those who would want to make more of a stand for freedom of speech, by giving into this stuff, you're also completely throwing under the bus the targets and the victims of religious bigotry in countries which do criminalise Islamic blasphemy. Yeah. I mean, the rise of Islamic blasphemy laws in places like Pakistan is bound up with the oppression of religious minorities, often within Islam itself, particularly mm. the Ahmadi community and so on, who are seen as heretics by um, by um, the majority of Muslims in that particular country. Um, and that's one of the really chilling things about this as well, where if you're talking about Christians, ex-Muslims, members of uh, what's seen as kind of heretical Muslim sects within Islam in Muslim-majority countries, we also throw those people under the bus we abandon those people when we allow these kind of blasphemy standards not only to kind of continue uncondemned in other parts of the world but even to kind of assert themselves over here at the behest of these tyrants and at the um you know the willing participation of very cowardly western leaders so it's not just about the west kind of sticking up for itself these are universal values which yeah. defend people the world over and the more we allow them to be encroached upon uh the more people are going to fall victim to that kind of intense intolerance and religious bigotry which is um, something that surely anyone should want to take on so costa coffee has come under fire for one of its vans which featured a mural of a blue-haired girl with two mastectomy scars ella i mean what is it about why would a brand want to celebrate something like this like the removal of a girl's breasts i think it's really interesting that costa has done it because i don't know about where anyone else lives, but in Dalston, Hackney, Costa is the only place where normal people go. You know, you've got you've got sort of ten artisan different kind of coffee shops on the street, um, and Costa is where you know the working class people go. Actually, a lot of homeless people go there. It's sort of like it's the it's the one safe zone for anyone who's not a yummy mummy or a sort of yuppie in Hackney, and and so not the constituents for this based with this kind of. Uh, very extreme um, trans ideology, not even sort of just a blue-haired person, but a blue-haired person who's been mutilated yeah. or has mutilated themselves through top surgery. Um, it's fascinating to me that I'm, I'm sort of, the jury's out for me on whether or not this is just a cynical ploy to kind of use woke washing or whether at, there is a genuine belief within these big corporations that uh, a young woman uh, disliking herself so intensely that she removes working parts of her body um, is a good thing 
But I think that it's it, it sort of speaks to the issue around why so much of trans ideology seems to have a problem with women. I mean, I was thinking about the fact that, you know, you've had national, international campaigns to remove women's breasts from newspapers around page three. And because breasts are so offensive and even the sight of them, okay, lots of them cut up as well because they're enlarged. But, you know, the, the idea of a woman's nap sort of picture of what a woman looks like with breasts is so offensive that it has to be removed from the public realm. Hmm. But a but a but a cut up woman, a yeah. woman with no breasts, who essentially looks like a man because she's just has these nipples and these scars, um, that's fine. Mm. That that's fine enough to put on the side of a bus or a side of a. Well, it's good. It's not just yeah, fine. It's, it's good to, to be celebrated. <laughs> that is that. There's something very wrong going on there. And some, I mean, for me, it kind of just shows you how ideology works in a sense because. Any normal person looking at that would see that's a woman who's had her breast cut off. But if you're a trans activist, you say that's a glorious expression of gender affirming care. This person has been helped. Um, that that's their true self. Mm -hmm. And and for detransitioners, which has been an interesting angle to this story as it's developed, it's a reminder of something which was effectively promoted to them as a solution to all their problems, something mm -hmm. which they now deeply and bitterly regret. And that's another side to the story which often isn't listened to because it's so kind of forcibly suppressed. But there was a piece in the Daily Mail this week from a female detransitioner who had gone through this particular procedure. And again, something because there were, whether it's clinicians or whether it was a general culture that they found online, which was, again, promoting irreversible surgery, which often means a kind of lifetime of discomfort and pain in many respects, as, as I say, the solution to all of their problem so for, for someone like that to see a campaign like this or to see a, a cost of van like this is something which is just uncritically celebrating not just an image but effectively an ideology which yeah. has cost someone so dearly it's, it's the other side to this which you think is, is so grim really and is never really aired in this general discussion which is just presented in this ridiculously reductive way as a kind of punch and judy show between horrible transphobes who are just upset by um the image of a trans person and um trans people and trans allies on the other hand walking us towards utopia but that's there's there's a reason people get upset about all of this is because of yeah. what really that image represents to a lot of people and the sort of genuine trauma that um that are being effectively kind of urged into a procedure like that kind of entails if you see what i mean i mean you know what costa's defense is that it's promoting diversity it's promoting inclusion it's you know making the reality of being trans more visible I mean, is that really, can you buy that at all? It just seems such an odd thing for, what, why does a coffee shop want to do that anyway? Well, yeah, I mean, why does Wix or any of these kind of mm. organisations want to, companies, you know, businesses <laughs> who are either selling you nails or cappuccinos want to engage in the culture wars? That's why I kind of said, I'm, I'm really genuinely conflicted. I wonder whether there's sort of, there must be some some people in those companies of an age who just sort of own the money and have just handed over the sort of political and moral responsibility to i don't know 20 year old social media people that they get in and <laughs> they've heard this and is they've popular. been yeah <laughs> taken over i mean that would be the generous assessment i, I probably think is that actually there's more cowardice going on in there where there's a sort of uh, it's, it's almost like with the green agenda there's just this sort of hands up or well we better do what's what's popular or what's right but I really think we have to unpick this thing, inclusion, diversity, you know, mm. unpick these these labels because, you know, it's one thing to say that I think most people would say that they want to be inclusive about uh, 
people dressing differently, people living their lives a bit differently, looking different, whatever. But we, uh, even most trans activists understand that there's a distinction between the sort of self-ID thing and calling yourself whatever and the very severe process of having extreme surgery, whether it's top surgery, bottom surgery, having bits removed of yourself, and then to display that so publicly, which is, it's a, it's a sign, as Tom says, it's a sign of dysphoria. Mm. You don't have your breasts removed if you're ambivalent about your breasts. Yeah. You have your breasts removed if, if you hate them, if you wake up every morning and look at yourself and think that's disgusting. And to celebrate that kind of mental trauma, but also a sort of, you know, a thing that we should be helping people to come to terms with or, you know, solve rather than remove is something, one, that a cost, that a comp, you know, coffee company should be engaging in. But two, I think that most normal people should be pushing back against it. Yeah. Just say, if this is inclusion and diversity, I don't really want to have anything to do with it. Thank you for listening to The Spike Podcast. We're back every Friday and you can now watch us on video too. Check us out on YouTube or go via The Spiked website, which is spiked-online.com. See you next time.